I'm going to start with a story about a high-powered attorney from Chicago, a big city attorney, a big city lawyer, who drove down to Texas to hunt doves. He's out hunting doves, and the dove gets up, and he shoots at it, and he hits it, and it falls to the ground, but it's on the other side of the fence on property that doesn't have permission to hunt. The attorney decides, I need that dove, so he climbs over the fence, and he's about to go pick up his dove. When he noticed the, only, the, the dove wasn't the only thing he saw, he didn't notice this before, but there's a big cowboy sitting on his horse, just looking at him. And this Texan cowboy looks at him and says, what is it you think you're doing? And he says, I'm dove hunting, and I shot that dove, and I'm going to go pick up my dove. And he says, no, 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 you're not. This is private property. You, know, have no, you have no right to come on this property and pick up this dove. This high-powered attorney from Chicago kind of puffs up his chest. He says, you don't let me take that dove, I'm going to sue you. The Texan rancher just looks at him and smiles and says, we don't do that, those things that way down here in Texas. And he says, oh yeah, so what do you do down here in Texas? He says, we have the three-kick rule. The three-kick rule. The lawyer's a little confused, but he says, so what's the three-kick rule? And he says, we'll settle this with the three kicks. I'll first kick you three times, and you'll kick me three times, and as soon as one of us gives up, the other one wins. So when I give up, you get the dove. If you give up, dove's mine. The lawyer thinks for a moment and says, yeah, all right, let's do the three-kick rule. About then, the cowboy gets off his horse, and the lawyer sees his great big pointed cowboy boots, and the, 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 the rancher walks over and says, I'll go first. And he kicks him with the big old cowboy boot right in the shin, and the guy just about goes to the ground. The pain is searing through his leg, and it hurts like crazy. But he stands there. The rancher kicks him again, and this time the pain is overwhelming, and he crumbles to the ground in pain and agony, but he's not about to give up. And the rancher kicks him a third time right in the head, and the guy is seeing the stars, and he's dizzy, and he can hardly not pass out, but he struggles to his feet. And in a squeaky, weak voice, he says, okay, it's my turn. And the rancher says, nah, I give up. You can have the dove. <laughs> We've probably all heard the statement, what we need or what they need is a good swift kick. Well, sometimes a swift kick gets us going. But there are some things that a swift kick doesn't do any good at all. And one area where a swift kick doesn't do any, go any good at all is in removing that barrier that's between us and God. No swift kick, nor anything else that we could do would remove that barrier. That barrier between us and God is sin. We are in a study of a book called The Story, which is really the Word of God. And we are looking at chapter 4 for those of you that I hope are reading along. I know many, many of you have ordered the book. And we're in chapter 4 of the book. The title of the message this morning is The Deliverance 
of Israel. In the story, as I said, it's chapter 4. In your Bibles, it starts in Exodus chapter 1. And it goes through Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. I just want to encourage you to continue to be reading and studying, preparing each week as we look through the story of the Bible. Today, the story opens with God's new nation. Remember, he called Abraham to establish a nation. And of course, things happened, and last week we talked about Joseph. How God used Joseph to save his nation, his chosen people, from the famine that was in the land. By giving him favor in Egypt, becoming the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And how God used Joseph to save his people. But now all of a sudden, we see some things have changed. If you remember from the story of Joseph, he was 17 years old when his brother sold him into slavery. For 22 years, he went through a number of challenges and tests and trials. And then at the age of 39, he's put in this position of power supernaturally by God in Egypt. And Joseph lived 71 years after that, where the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, the Hebrew nation, prospered because of the favor upon Joseph as God's chosen one. But Joseph died. When he was 110 years old, he died. And over some, over some time, the Bible says, a man, a pharaoh came to power that didn't know Joseph. He didn't remember him. All favor was gone. And what this pharaoh saw was a whole bunch of Hebrews multiplying and reproducing and increasing in number almost exponentially. And they turned him into slaves in Egypt. They were the slaves of Egypt. But even as they were slaves, God continues to fulfill His promise that they're going to make a great nation. Your children will be as the stars of the heavens, the sands of the, of the sea. And they're reproducing. But Pharaoh sees a threat in the numbers of these people. And at the time of the story here, Pharaoh institutes a rule of infanticide. There's getting to be too many of them. If an enemy would attack, they'll side with the enemy and they'll destroy us. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill every single Hebrew baby boy. And if you don't, you will fall under the judgment of Pharaoh. And it's in this situation where God's chosen people once again are being challenged and faced with destruction. God starts to move in his upper story which is to protect his people, redeem his people, and draw him back to himself. There's a little Hebrew baby born, a baby boy. And his mother, to protect him, made a little basket, coated it with pitch so it would float, and put the baby in the basket, and put the baby and the basket in the water, the River Nile. And as God would have it, Pharaoh's daughter discovers this baby in the basket and decides to keep it as her own. And she knows it's a Hebrew baby. And Moses' little sister, his older sister, who was watching in the rushes, went to the daughter of Pharaoh and said, Would you like me to go find a Hebrew mother to nurse this baby? God is so good. She goes and gets Moses' natural mother. And she comes and nurses Moses. And ultimately, then Moses is taken into the house of Pharaoh, 
and he's raised in the house of Pharaoh until about the age of 40. So he's 40 years old and he's walking out amongst the Hebrew slaves and he ends up coming to the defense of a Hebrew who's being abused by one of the taskmasters of Egypt and he kills this guy. He murders him. And he discovers that it's become common knowledge that he did this and he has to flee from Egypt for his life. He flees to a foreign land called Midian and he's out there for 40 years. He gets married, has a couple of children, and he becomes a shepherd for his father-in-law. For 40 years he's in the desert while the people, his Hebrew people, are slaves in all of Egypt. And then one day what happens to him? He's out tending the flock and he sees something strange over out of the corner of his eye and he looks over there and it's a bush that looks like it's on fire, only the bush isn't being destroyed. And it says Moses went aside to go and see what this strange thing was. And we got over to the bush, God spoke to him and said, take the shoes off your feet because this is holy ground. And God speaks to him through this bush. And he is commissioning Moses Once again, God's upper story, his plan is is starting to step up again. And he says, Moses, I'm going to send you to Egypt to deliver my people. You are called to go back to Egypt and bring the people out of bondage. Moses asks God, God, who are you? What do I tell the people? Why would they believe me? Who do I, who do I say told me? And, and he gives Moses his name. He says, I am Yahweh. I am the preexistent one. That's who you tell him it is that sent you. I am has sent me. He goes back to Egypt after he's argued with God. He's God, not me. I'm not. What are you thinking? I politely decline. <laughs> God's having nothing to do with that. But I can't even speak well. Gee, I didn't know that, Moses. God knows everything. He finally negotiates with God, and God's going to bring Aaron alongside of him, his brother. And he goes back to Egypt. And he faces opposition from his own people, first of all. Who in the world are you, Moses? to come in here and think that you're going to lead us out of captivity, lead us out of bondage. You're an 80-year-old man, for crying out loud. You've been hiding in the desert for 40 years. Well, they finally become convinced, and then he faces opposition from Pharaoh. We could spend a lot of time talking about the opposition from Pharaoh. You know, there's a picture of us here. We keep reading over and over that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, it wasn't a random thing. God knew Pharaoh's heart. He knew Pharaoh had elevated himself to a god in the eyes of the people. And they were worshiping idols. And he knew he had a hardened heart. And he was going to just harden his heart so he would have his purposes played out. And the ten plagues come that are in a lot of our children's Bible stories. I don't know if you can read the ten plagues up there. Probably not. But it's really interesting when you look at those plagues, and we'll look at them a little bit in a few minutes. But one thing, if you would go down the side of the plagues, the Niles turn to blood. Frogs, gnats, 
flies, livestock boils, hail, locust darkness, all of those things, all of those things represent false gods that the people of Egypt worship. God systematically went through and destroyed all of their false gods. And then it comes to the last plague. In destroying their false gods that they worshipped, the Nile River was a god. All, the gnats, the flies. I mean, think about it. They, they worshipped all of these and many more, but God was showing them that there is no God but Yahweh. He is the all-powerful God. He is the only one worthy of worship. And He systematically comes and destroys what each one of those things represented. And each time He would go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's heart would be hardened. And another plague would come. And this happened over and over and over. And all they wanted to do in the beginning was to go out into the desert and worship. And finally it was, let my people go. And then the tenth plague. He goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, let us go. And he says, you aren't going anywhere. He says, if you don't let us go. All the firstborn of Egypt, all the humans and every animal is going to die. And Pharaoh says, no, you aren't going anywhere. And then God, in His mercy, and in His upper story plan to preserve His people, He institutes Passover. Passover. He tells Moses, He gives them explicit instructions. Here's what you're supposed to do. I want you to go and tell all of the Hebrew nation to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, a perfect lamb. And he gives exact instructions that you can read about. But he says, on that next tenth day, I want you to take that lamb and you sacrifice it. And then he gives instructions what to do with it. But he also gives instructions, take some of the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts, the side posts of the door, and put it over the sill of the door. And when the angel of death comes, when I send the angel of death through all out the, throughout the whole land of Egypt, when I see the blood of the lamb, the spotless lamb, I will pass over and judgment will not fall on you or your house. And the people follow the instructions perfectly. And the angel of death came, went through the entire nation of Egypt and the firstborn, didn't matter who you were, the firstborn of Pharaoh died firstborn of someone in prison died. It says all of the firstborn throughout the land, humans and animals, died. But not a single Hebrew who had put the blood of the sacrifice over the doorposts of their house, the sill of their house. Nothing came on them. And finally Pharaoh lets them go. And as he lets them go, think about this. The nation had grown to somewhere over 3 million people. And they're all set free and God blesses them with riches of Egypt and they take off and, and they wander and they come out to the Red Sea and all of a sudden Pharaoh changes his mind and most of you know the story of the Red Sea. They're trapped. Here comes Pharaoh with his chariots and he says, we're going to destroy them and bring what we can back as slaves. We need the slaves. And God opens up and departs the Red Sea. And Moses leads the people through. 
And the Egyptians come in with their chariots and their horses and their weapons. And they get down in the Red Sea and the water closes in around them and destroys them forever. They're set free. The people celebrate. Oh, did they celebrate. Moses' sister writes a song and they celebrate. But it doesn't take very many days and all of a sudden they start quit celebrating and they start murmuring and complaining. What did you bring us out here for? Just to die in the desert. We're hungry. Give us some food. Give us some water. We're thirsty. And God meets every need. He proves himself faithful over and over to deliver them from their fears, to deliver them from their inability to provide for themselves. He provides. The reality is the story of God's people is just beginning. The details of what we call their lower story, what was taking place on earth, was just starting to form a little more clearly the outline of the big picture that's found in God's perfect story. We're going to look at three aspects of this story that I believe will encourage us, challenge us, and give us hope in our lower story, the lives we're living out, as we begin to see how we are a part of God's much bigger story. The first point is this. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips those he calls. In Philippians 4.13 it says, I can do everything how? Through Christ who gives me strength. He equips those he calls. Look at Moses' resume just for a second. He's an 80-year-old guy. He's a shepherd out in the middle of nowhere. No leadership experience. By his own admission, he's a terrible communicator. He can't even speak well. He's wanted for murder in the country God's about to send him back to. And he tries to turn down the job more than once. Now in the lower story, with our lower story way of thinking, our natural way of thinking, we go, what in the world is God thinking? This is the best he can do? Well, the reality is, in the upper story understanding, in God's mind, he looks at Moses and says, this guy is perfect because there is so little in him that there's no way he's going to be able to take the credit or the glory. The people are going to see that it's God working through him. Boy, I like that. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about God working through us. He will equip us to whatever it is he calls us to. Moses didn't have the skills in the natural. The people came out of Egypt. God's mighty hand. The only way was through deliverance by God's divine move. The best thing that Moses did in this whole story is the one thing that we need to do in our story. Say yes to God. When God calls us, when God puts something on your heart, just say yes to God. Don't come up with all the excuses like Moses did. Don't start disqualifying yourself because of all your inadequacies, all your shortcomings. You've got them. So do I. You know, have you got God figured out yet? No. I don't have a clue most of the time what God is doing. But you know what I've discovered and I know what we, we all need to discover is let's embrace our cluelessness. God, I don't know what, but yes. God, I don't have any idea, but yes. God, I, yeah, maybe, yes. 
Embrace it. All he's looking for is people that will say yes and make themselves available. You want a ministry? Say yes and make yourself available. You'll start praying, God, that's enough. You'll be like, Moses, these three million people are driving me crazy. But God will equip. Say yes. God will equip those he calls, and he has called you, and he's called me. Not the equipped, but he will equip those he calls. The second thing, and this is the challenge part. God will deal with the competition in our lives. That's a little bit scary. He's going to deal with the competition in our lives. What's the first commandment? You shalt have no other gods before me. Look at the scripture in Exodus 34, 14. You must worship no other gods for the Lord whose very name is Jealous. His very name is Jealous. Is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. He doesn't want much, just everything. He doesn't want competition in our lives. That doesn't mean there's not other things in our lives that we can enjoy and bring us pleasure, or the things that we, we do. He says none of them will become an idol in your life. God shot down every single false god in Egypt and proved that he was the only one worthy of worship. I believe God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? The good news is he's also love. God is careful to lovingly, but deliberately, bring us to our knees. Repentance. By defeating the false gods in our lives. And he'll start gently and lovingly. But he'll do what it takes to get us to that place. Now, most of us would look at those Egyptian false gods that were up there and go, are you kidding me? We're going to worship a gnat or the image of a gnat? A frog? We're going we're gonna to worship a river? Oh, we're smarter than that. Good news is we don't have any false gods in our lives. Boy, is that wrong. False gods work. Men in particular, our jobs become us. False god. Self-sufficiency. I can do all things because I'm so good. I'm so smart. I'm so wise. False god. This false God of legalism that gets in our life and into our nature, this idea that we're always right, we always have to be right. False God. There are so many false gods in our life. Pride that demands that, that we think we deserve everything. False God in our life. Addictions are false gods in our life. We're looking for something to take away the pain or whatever. And the next thing you know, we're hooked to a false god, an idol in our life. The vending machine god. 
You know how you go to a vending machine and you stand there and look at, what is it I really want? And you know, all I need to do is drop in a few coins. Well, not a few anymore. Quite a few. I can get whatever I want. God is not a vending machine. That is a false God that we go to for every little thing that we think we need. And really all they are is things we want. And then a real common one is the 911 God. When in trouble, dial God. And trust and hope that he'll bail you out. These are all false gods and the list could go on and on. How do we respond? Do we want to go through plagues in our own life of some sort? God in his grace and in his mercy will convict us of sin. He will convict us of these false gods in our life. He will grant us repentance. And all we have to do is be quick to go to our knees and say, God, forgive me of these false gods. There is no God besides him. He's jealous. So he will equip those he calls, and he's going to deal with the competition in our lives. And thirdly, the hope. In the story, God reveals our certain hope. And he does this in the picture that we see of Passover, the blood of the Lamb. In Exodus 12, page 51 in your books, the story, it says this, It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. He's going to go through the land of Egypt. He's going to go through the land of Egypt bringing judgment. But he says, I will pass over. I will pass over. I will spare. I will exempt. You have immunity because of the blood. This final plague, final judgment against Egypt. If you remember in the story, it's a lamb without spot or blemished. Our hope is in the Lamb of God. Look at the scriptures in John 1, 29. John the Baptist is speaking to some of his followers and he said, it says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes it away. He doesn't just cover it up. He doesn't just put it on hold and decide I'll judge you later for it. He takes it away. The Lamb of God, the picture that we see of the blood being on the doorpost and the sill of the door and the God passes over. And 1 Peter 1, 18, it says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. It's like, it's like again, as it was in the story of Joseph, it's the same in the story of Moses. It's like God can hardly wait to reveal his plan of redemption. He keeps giving us pictures, types, shadows of what he is going to do through Jesus Christ. 
You know what the Old Testament is all about? Jesus. You know what the New Testament is all about? Jesus. We see in the Old Testament as we look through God's upper story, Jesus, as He's preparing the way for Jesus to come. Types, shadows, pictures. In the New Testament, we see the real thing. And when God says, I will pass over because I'm executing judgment on Egypt, we need to understand this. Every one of us need to understand this. There is coming a day when God is going to execute judgment on all the people that have ever lived in the history of time. He's going to execute judgment. And if the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, isn't over the doorposts of our soul, we will be judged. But if it is, He will not only pass over, He will look upon you and me and He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Your name is in the Lamb's book of life. And He will pass over. And it's a certainty that He will pass over. It's a promise He will pass over. For each one of us, the blood of Jesus is the way of escape from God's judgment of sin. And it's a gift of mercy. We didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. But He gives it to us. But for all who fail to follow Him, for all who fail to accept the gift, judgment will come. It's eternal separation from the presence of God. It's torment eternally. Eternally. Forever and ever tormented. Oh, it would be nice if it would just destroy you. But it doesn't. Eternal torment. Or eternity in heaven with the King of kings and Lord of lords, worshiping God with the angels forever. Yeah, it seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? We cannot save ourselves. It's impossible. As I said last night, when it comes to purchasing our salvation, we are absolutely bankrupt. It's God who provides Jesus as the instrument of our salvation. Jesus is God's only provision for salvation. Appropriating, receiving the blood of Jesus, receiving that blood is a new beginning. You know, going back to the story of Passover in ancient Egypt, God said, when he, did, when he instituted Passover, He says, you know what? This is such a big deal I'm changing your calendar. This is a new beginning. From today on, this is the first day of the first month of your year. Even though it was in the seventh month of the traditional year. And for you and me, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, it is a new beginning. It is a new birth. We are a new creation in Christ. Everything that we need is in us by the Holy Spirit to live a life that now brings glory and honor to God. We're not redeemed only from sin. We are redeemed to bring God glory. That's why He created us. We're redeemed to be intimate in relationship and fellowship with Him. That's the whole purpose of God's upper story. Nothing in God's plan is by accident. You ever make a plan... And something goes wrong, and all of a sudden you come out, that was the best thing that ever happened. 
Well, with God, there are no accidents. It all happens according to his plan. And in his plan, you and I have a divine destiny. You have a purpose. Even as we, we heard and read over Connor this morning and dedicating Connor to the Lord, before Connor was formed in Kimberly's womb, God knew and has a plan, a destiny for him. That little boy has a destiny in God. But so do you. So do I. We have a divine destiny. And that divine destiny is in Christ, and it's the lower story that we walk out in our lives. And as we seek God, we begin to see more clearly all the time how it fits into his upper story, how in his plan of redemption for us. Salvation on our end is really simple. It costs God his son. We need to acknowledge simply that we are sinners. And because of sin, we are separated from God eternally. And realize and understand that there's nothing we can do to become perfect in God's sight. Nothing. No matter how good you are, it's not good enough. That's why we need to acknowledge that, God, we are helpless, but you sent Jesus. The perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God who became sin on our behalf, took the curse, became the curse for us, died on the cross in our place. He shed his blood. And when we accept Jesus as a gift of salvation, it's as if the blood is applied to our lives. And now when God looks at us, he does say, holy and righteous because of Christ. And we just need to receive that gift and then surrender our life to him and say, Lord, I've made a mess of it so far. I'm giving it to you. By your grace, by the Holy Spirit living in me, I want to live my life to bring glory and honor to you. And it's a new beginning. It's a new life in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are so thankful for new beginnings. God, most of us, if not all of us, have made such a mess of our lives in the past. And we were on a path that led to destruction, and you rescued us. You wooed us. You gave us grace to respond. And that in faith in what Jesus did, we might be saved. Lord, there's some of us here who are still on that path to destruction, wondering, maybe deceived into thinking somehow or other we can get there on our own. Lord, I pray you would break through that lie of the enemy and that truth would settle in our hearts. God, reveal to us those gods in our life that are not you. Grant us repentance that we would be quick to forgive. And Lord, I pray that we say yes and I am thankful that you will equip us as we do to accomplish your purposes that your church is called to be a mighty army advancing the kingdom here on earth to bring you glory God we want to be that army in southwest Minnesota by your grace we can see mighty things happen here and Lord we pray that it starts with us 
In Jesus' name, amen.